Revelation chapter 16 brings us to uh, this chapter that mentions Armageddon. We hear Armageddon, believers, unbelievers, people of different faiths. Everybody knows Armageddon. And uh, they have an idea, Armageddon, that's finally when nuclear war takes place and wipes out the whole planet. This is Armageddon. Like, I hope Armageddon doesn't happen this week. If you've read ahead, you know Armageddon is not going to happen this week. Armageddon in the scripture is not a surprise event. It follows a whole series of events. It takes place at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, there are spiritual forces at work that lead up to it. So in this chapter, we get to the battlefield. We get to Armageddon. And then 17, 18, and 19 more specifically lead up to it. Uh, But it gives us a series of things here. And uh, there's a great earthquake. And there's great this and great 11 times in the chapter. It mentions great, that there are great things. Um, And it talks about the men that are being judged here. And everywhere through the chapter, men has the article before it, the men. So it's talking about unbelievers. We've come to the place here where there isn't anything redemptive in this chapter. There isn't, this is not evangelistic. This is not about conversion. This is about God's judgment finally being released on the world. In the end of chapter 15, he withdrew into the temple. Smoke filled the temple. No one can get near him. Certainly he has brooding. His heart is broken. He has done everything he could possibly do. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But now as these bowls are poured out, they're the poles of his wrath. There's there's no redemptive value to them. These are the bowls of his wrath uh, being poured out. And this is bringing us to the greatest war in human history, the greatest conflagration with nations from all over the world, humankind, the grapes of wrath being crushed out, the great wine vat of God. It's the it's the that greatest gathering in the history of humankind, and it's the greatest tragedy in the history of redemption. Because all through the Old Testament, all certainly for you and I through the New Testament, there's the history of substitutionary atonement, that someone innocent has died in our place. And now that is completely rejected. In this picture, no one wants to hear about that. In fact, they shake their fist at the sky and they curse the name of God. They want to worship Satan. So there's a heaviness and a soberness to the chapter. And it, the, by the magnitude of these things, these bowls of wrath, this has to happen in fairly rapid succession. You'll see as we start to go in, this can't kind of linger. This couldn't go on for a while. This has to be one blow after another, as it were. So he begins here in chapter 16. It says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So this great voice, we're assuming God's voice because it comes out of the temple. He's gone there himself. No one else can enter in. This great voice comes out of the temple, saying to the seven angels that we met earlier, 
that have these seven bowls go your ways. So there is a way, it's plural, for each of them. We're going to find out there's the first bowl, the second bowl, the third. So there's an order. Go your ways and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. So each one of them had a plague, a judgment. Then they were given the bowls of God's wrath to mix that judgment with. Look, in chapter 8, well, chapter 6, we, we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We, we, we enter into the seals. The seals could be interpreted naturally as just war, problems, a natural phenomenon. And uh, the, the seals, we find out that a fourth of the world's population through the seals dies, over a billion people. Then, then it gives us kind of an interlude, a parenthesis. Then we get to chapter 8, where then we see the next series of judgments, which are the, the seventh seal, and that is seven trumpets. And in those seven trumpets, God's grace is still functioning because it's a third of people. It's a third of the trees, a third of the ocean, a third of the streams. You kind of go through. And, uh, and then in the seventh trumpet, we have these seven vials. Now when they are poured out, there's... There's no restriction in regards to God's wrath. There's no, you know, hesitation as the angels move. Uh, There's no redemption in the process. There's no longer God's grace, a third, a third, a third. This is complete now as this takes place. So the first angel then, verse 2, he went and he poured out his bowl, vial, it says, upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and them which worshipped his image. So this first angel goes forward and it says he pours out this bowl of God's wrath upon the earth It says it falls on the men. We're not talking about believers. We're talking about the men who are worshiping the beast. It says right here, they've received his mark. And there is a sore that comes on them. It says it's noisome, which means running. It is grievous, which means it's painful. And we're not specifically told, is it coming on the right hand and on the forehead? Is it because of the mark they've taken? Is it bursting out now to haunt them, to to plague them? Possibly we're not sure of that. If people who got on their forehead is running and it's painful. But this this judgment now comes. They receive the mark of the beast. Now they're receiving the mark of God's wrath. Uh, and you have to imagine, because this is basically the population that's left of humankind that have bowed down to worship the beast. Now they're smitten with this running and grievous sore. Look, in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us the same thing in chapter 28, I believe, that God is able to do this, that he can pour out a grievous sore, a boil, a hemrod, the botch. It gives it different names. I don't want any of those. But it says there, God says, nobody gets away with anything. You know, the children of Israel, they come into the land. If they worship me, they stay true to me. I'll bless them and so forth. But those who turn away and worship other gods, those who give themselves to idolatry, they're going to be judged. And it even says there, 
if they're not noticed by any man, if no human eye takes notice, God Almighty notices it, nobody gets away with anything, and he will smite them with those plagues. Here, the whole earth is smitten with these plagues. They are running. The sore that's breaking out on people is oozing. It's running, and it is painful. The second angel, verse 3, poured out his vial upon the sea, his bowl of wrath, and it, the sea, became, King James says, as the blood of a dead man. The Greek says that the sea became blood as of a dead man. So the as defines what the blood of a dead man, but it specifically says it became blood as the blood of a dead man. Is it congealed? Is it, we, we don't know, you know, certainly it, it's putrid, it's unimaginable. And every living soul died in the sea. Look, by the way, a chemist could tell you there is a very little difference between human blood and seawater. Take a little change up there and things could be rearranged. And for God, that's no big deal. Uh, but there's 330 cubical million miles of ocean on the planet. It far exceeds the land masses. Try to imagine 330 cubical million miles of blood. And every living soul, in chapter 1, when God creates, it says, everything he put in the ocean, he made them a living soul. Now this is reversing God's order of giving life when the, the oceans of the world, the seven seas and all of their depths, are turned to blood and every living creature in the oceans die. Every whale, every porpoise, every crab, all of the algae, the plankton, you know, you have to imagine this, you know, this, all of this washing up, are there wa red waves? The stench, the putrefaction is unimaginable when you try to imagine what's taking place here. But this has got to happen in fast succession now. It tells us in the next verse, it says, Then the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of water, all of the fresh water, and they become blood. Now, so nobody's, you're thirsty, too bad. You want to wash your sores, ain't happening. All of the fresh water in the world, it says here, turns to blood. Look, you can sit here this morning and say, I don't believe this stuff. Well, stick around and find out. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> you want to be right? You'll be dead right is what you'll be. <laughs> this is what God says in his word. You know, if you can get past the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything else is less than that. You get past the first verse, everything else is under his control. There's no problem. And here the fresh water, it tells us, is all turned to blood as well. And look, we know it's blood because look in verse 5. It says, and I heard, now this is interesting, the angel of the waters. Only time in the Bible you hear of the angels of the waters. We hear of angels, chapter 7, that are in charge of the wind. They hold wind back. We hear about the angel of fire before this. We hear about certain angels that have certain dominion over certain things. This happens to be the angel of the waters. How interesting is that? 
I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which is the theme that goes through the chapter, that God is just in all of this judgment, which art and wast and shall be, and here's why, Lord, because you have judged thusly. For, because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and the multitude that was killed by the Antichrist through the tribulation period is unimaginable. But that's, this is through history. Jesus in, in Matthew 23 talks about. They have shed the blood of the saints and of the prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink. For they are worthy. Now sometimes some, you and I are worthy of salvation. You know, there's other, this, But the word axios means to weigh as much as. And the idea is these are the just desserts that are given to them. That, this is what they weigh as much as. You want, the idea is you wanted blood, drink it. The angel says they wanted blood, you gave them blood. They shed the blood of the saints and of the prophets. This is what they wanted. So now you've fulfilled their desire. They wanted blood. You've given them blood. And I heard another, uh, I heard another out of the altar. So this is not one of the seven angels. This is another voice. Say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. You're just in doing this. So again, this is very difficult. As we get now to these other trumpets, you're going to get an idea of why he's doing what he's doing. But this has to be fast succession. Of the, if, if the oceans of the world are turned to blood, all of the carnage, every living creature in the sea is washing up. That's not a problem for God because it says when, he, in, in, when we get to the millennium, it says there is a stream that runs out from the presence of the Lord, from the temple, it runs to the right side of the altar. Right side is always strength. The altar is where the blood had been shed. It runs out. Half of it runs to the greater sea, the Mediterranean. Half of it runs down to the Dead Sea, and it begins to heal the waters of the world, the stream, the fountain that runs from God's presence. And it says the Dead Sea ends up being filled with fish. Fishermen are drying their nets there. Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because there ain't nothing in it. So it doesn't matter if all the rest of the seas now become the Dead Sea either. God's going to fill them with life again. But you have to imagine the carnage. And how long can you live with? What is this stench like? How far do you have to get away to get away from that? And, and then all of the fresh water. What is there to drink? What is there to wash your sores with? The, the idea. It's, it's, this, the succession has to be fairly quick. There has to be a brevity to it to some degree. The fourth angel, look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and power was given unto him, King James says. If your translation says power was given unto it, then it's, you refer back to sun. If there's a masculine pronoun there, power was given unto him. It's talking about this angel. Either way, you don't want to be down here. Power was given unto him to scorch, to burn men. There's a definite article in the men with fire. And the men were scorched with great heat. And look at the response. They blaspheme the name of God, which has power over these plagues 
and they repented not to give him glory. You wonder what people are going to be like in a situation like this. It says they refused to repent. It, it tells us that the heat of the atmosphere turns up so much that they're being burned. What happens when that happens if the polar caps melt? Are we seeing tidal waves of blood and dead animals? What's happening in the world? You know, you, you want to read an interesting chapter on chapter 16. You get Henry Morris's commentary on Revelation called the Revelation Record. He's a scientist, a PhD, and he talks about all of the implications in the natural realm of each one of these things. And he said, what, 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 the, 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 the tides would, ray, would rise. He said there'd be tidal waves. And this is with an ocean that's, that's had turned to blood with every living thing. And you have to understand, if the algae drops that much, people are gasping for breath. The, 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 the rainforests in South America do not produce the majority of oxygen in our atmosphere. The algae in the oceans produces over 70% of the oxygen in our atmosphere. And if that's dead, people are gasping in the process. Now they're being burned. And as they're being burned, they can't drink anything. And yet it says the response is they blaspheme the name of God, look, which has power over these plagues. They know where they come from and they repent and not. They refuse to turn. You know, you look at this, don't be surprised when you look at the world around you and you think, how can they do this? How can they think this? How can they put this on social media? How can they promote this kind of immorality? How can they do this? How can there be this much hatred? How can they be cutting people's throats? How can they do this? How can they do that? Because there are those who are so hard that the ministry of Almighty God no longer softening them. If you let the sun beat down on wax, it softens it. You let the sun beat down on clay, it hardens it. You know, the, the same heat produces different things in different circumstances. And here the hand of Almighty God is evident in the plagues. And it says and they refuse to repent. They've received the mark of the beast. They're worshiping Satan, and they raise their fists, and they, and they blaspheme the name of God who brought the plagues. Imagine that. Look, don't be surprised in our culture today if people get mad at you and you witness to them. Don't, don't be surprised in our culture if people hate. There's a hate now. You know, hate, even more than immorality, hate is being promoted on social media now on so many fronts. And we're one of the things they hate. They don't want the church around. I keep saying, Lord, they don't want us around. Blow the trumpet. Make them happy. You know, they don't want us here. They don't want to hear what we have to say. You know, so right now in our country, you have some people that are broken, that are running to the church because they're hopeless. They have nothing. Everybody else is hardening. And this is where all redemption has been drawn out of the picture. And you only have hardened people that are lost. They're blaspheming the name of God. They refuse to repent. And it says the fifth angel poured out his vial, his bowl, now on the seat, on the throne of the beast, of the Antichrist. And his kingdom, by the way this is structured, is geographically a specific place here. It says his throne and his kingdom 
are full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Gnawed there is, is in an imperfect tense. They continued chewing on their tongues and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they repented not of their deeds. They're still sinning in the middle of this. So so it, when the rest of the world like is heated up now and this it's hard to imagine the sun blazing then a painful darkness comes over the kingdom of the antichrist some say his throne is in rome some say it's in jerusalem it's not jerusalem some say it's in ancient babylon that that'll become an economic force in the days ahead of us possibly uh the problem is it seems to be associated with the river euphrates uh, there's no river, certainly on the hills in Jerusalem, and there's no real river. Euphrates is not in Italy, so um, wherever his throne is will be fine with me because I'll be by his throne. I'll be next to my father's throne, so wherever the Antichrist wants his throne, I could care less. Okay? People can argue about that. We'll all be friends when we get to heaven. So this darkness comes now on the, the throne of the Antichrist and his kingdom was full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues. You know, it tells us that in Egypt, when God brought darkness on the kingdom of Egypt, Pharaoh, that Goshen, where the children of Israel lived, they were in the sunlight. But darkness fell over Egypt and it says they gnawed their tongues. It was a terrible darkness. It was fearful. It says here, this darkness is painful. And it says they're gnawing their tongues. You know, Jesus said the problem with mankind is they love darkness more than light. And that's why they don't want to come to the light, because their deeds will be made manifest. Here it says they repented not of their deeds. People don't want to come to the light because they, they don't want to admit they shouldn't be living in sexual sin outside of marriage. They don't want to admit that the sexual standards of our culture have gone haywire. They don't want to admit that science points to creation and not evolution, because then there's accountability. They don't want to admit there's a right way and a wrong way to do things in our culture. They refuse to repent, and Jesus said that's because they love, they agape darkness more than light. They're devoted to it, because they know if they come into the light, their deeds are made manifest. They're drug into the light with them. Here we see this incredible scene where they're noise. It's almost like the Lord says, you love darkness? Here, chew on it for a while. Chew on it for a while. Tell me if you like this, because this is just a foretaste of your eternity. They love darkness more than light. We know that because it says, again, they blasphemed the God of heaven. They refused to repent of their deeds. Try to imagine this. Ocean's blood, freshwater blood, sores broken out all over, the sun burning them. You know, the, the kingdom of the Antichrist now shut in darkness. Nobody can even see. It's, it's so dark they feel it. It's painful. They're gnawing their tongues. What do they do? They curse God. They blaspheme his name. They refuse to turn from their deeds. That's why the angels are saying, Lord, you're just in all of this. This is what they wanted, Lord. You're just in it. Now, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up. It's not dammed up. 
it's dried up, that the way of the kings of the east, from the rising sun, from that direction, kings of the east, might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Isn't it interesting? The Holy Spirit is like a dove. Satan's spirits are like frogs. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, this is global, and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest um, he walk naked and they see his shame. For he gathered them together <clears throat> into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So we have this incredible picture here in this process. The heat is turned up. <clears throat> the river Euphrates dries up. Um, the Euphrates was always the one border of the land that was promised to Abraham. Euphrates was always the border between Greece, Alexander the Great, and the rest of the world. The border, Euphrates was always the border of the Roman Empire and the Parthians. and You know, <clears throat> it, it separate east from west. If you remember, Rudyard Kipling said, east is we, east, west is west, and never the twain shall meet. Did you learn that when you were in school? The, the gray hair learned that when they were in school. Okay. <laughs> That's not just what he said. They never give you the second half of that. He says... East is east, west is west, and never the twain shall meet until earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. That's what Roger Kipling said. So, so this river Euphrates, now it dries up. Now, what, for that to dry up, understand that Euphrates and the Tigris, they're fed from the mountains in Armenia, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, and, and it's the Ararat range, basically. But on Mount Ararat itself, at about 15,000 foot above the Ahura Gorge, is Noah's Ark. Every couple of years, the last week of August, first week of September, part of it sticks out of the glacier as it dies back. Um, Marco Polo was there. Tsar Nicholas had a thousand men there for a month. Anastasia used to wear a cross made from the gopher wood of the, uh, the Noah's Ark. It's there. And if the Euphrates dries up, it means its water sources that feed it are gone, which means those glaciers, that snow is gone, which means the Noah's Ark is laying out in the open for the first time since the last time God judged the whole world, the globe. And he said, it won't happen with water again. Next time it'll be with fire. And we see this here remarkably. Euphrates is dried up, it says, to make way for the kings of the rising sun as they're coming. There's a conglomerate of nations that come. These are the and the and these demonic spirits come out of the mouth of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, to gather the world together to Armageddon, to bring the kings of the whole earth, to gather them to the battle of the great day. 
And then verse 15, it's almost like God interrupts himself here. He says, look, he, and this has to be what we take out of this as we look at, behold, I come as a thief. Now the third beatitude, there's seven in the book of Revelation, the third beatitude is blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he should walk naked and they should see his shame. This is not written for the God-haters at the end of the, the book of Revelation going into Armageddon. Not, there's no blessing for them. This is not written for those who hate God. This is the same promise made to the church of Sardis. There were promises made to the churches as we went through chapters 2 and 3. And the Lord says here, behold, it's a present imperative. You must consider this. I come, present tense, I am coming quickly. It's almost like the Lord, you know, takes a step back. And, and from his place in the temple, he's watching the whole world finally being judged. He has to finally clean it up. It breaks his heart. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not his will that any should perish, but they'd have all come to repentance. And now it just comes to the point there's no more redemption. Now the eagles, the birds of prey are gathered because the carrion, the carcass is rotting, and there's no more way to straighten that out. And God steps back. His heart is broken, and he must look at his bride, look at his church, you know, because these letters went to the seven churches. This book was read by the churches from the time it was written. And it's almost like our father steps back and says, Behold, you need to think about this. To all of us here this morning, this is what you need to think about. You get a teenager to help you with that. You need to think about this. Guys, you need to think about this. Be thinking about it continually. Present imperative. Behold, I come quickly. He's coming like a thief in the night. He says, he says here, you know, I come as a thief. This can't be to the saints, you know, because they know after the desolation of abomination is 1,260 days till Christ comes. They know by what's going on in the world here, he's coming. The, the, there's, no, there's no thiefness about this. For you and I, in the days we're living in, the thing that's going to shock our world initially is the Lord descending with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. That will give rise to the other great battle in the last days, Ezekiel 30, 39, which will set the stage for the Antichrist. By the time it gets here, there's no more surprise. They're cursing God. This is not written for them. It's not saying, oh, you, all you God cursers down there, you need to think about this. I'm coming as a thief. No, they're not going to read this. They're not going to have copies of the book of Revelation saying, hey, here's where we all fry. This is great. It's almost like the Lord steps back and looks at his church. And he says, you need to think about this. You need to think. This is what you need to think about. I'm coming like a thief. At an hour you think not. There's a preemptiveness about my coming for my bride. Blessed are those who watcheth, E-T-H at the end means present tense, who are continually watching. And blessed are those that are keeping, continually keeping his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his naked. Now certainly uh, our garments, you know, 
the, the, we're clothed in righteousness. The Lord wants us to live according to what he's imparted to us. You know, there's wisdom there. But when this was written, the other side of historically, the story is the Roman soldiers that stood guard, that were watching, and there were 16-man teams, and Dev grew our team six, and Delta, some of these guys still adhere to some of these things the Romans used. If a commanding officer came and this 16-man team was standing watch and one man fell asleep, that commanding officer killed all of them. They were all put to death because one person fell asleep. So what those guards would do is they saw somebody, part of their team, sleeping, they would take one of the brands from the fire, and you know they, they wore those little red skirts with those metal fingers over them. They would take one of those brands from the fire and set their skirt on fire. Yeah, that's the rude awakening. And, and, and by the time they woke up, that skirt was basically burning away, and they were naked, and their shame was exposed. And the Lord says, here, don't fall asleep. You're part of my team. You're supposed to be watching. Don't be like those. You know, they fall asleep and then ends up their nakedness is exposed, their shame, because they weren't watching. They weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. In the middle of this crazy world, guys, everything's blowing apart. It's depressing watching the news, isn't it? You look at everything going on, and our Father who loves us says, you need to consider this. I'm coming as a thief. Are you going to be watching? Are you going to be busy about my business? Are you going to be waiting? When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth that was once delivered to the saints? Blessed are those who I find when I come watching, keeping their garments. There's a, there's a maintenance or something they're maintaining in this crazy world. And do that so that your nakedness is not exposed to your shame. Then he gets to the word Armageddon. And he should make that a capital H in your Bible. It's not the Antichrist, not the false prophet. They only think they're gathering the troops. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Ezraldin, the valley of Megiddo, from the Hebrew Har. Megiddo is the mountain of Megiddo. We go there. Solomon had stables there. He built that city that was a fortress, and it overlooks the valley of Armageddon. Napoleon looked at it and said, this is the greatest battlefield on the face of the earth. We know from chapter 14 that troops will amass from Megiddo, from Dan to Beersheba, over 200 miles of that part of the world will be covered shoulder to shoulder with armies from around the world that have gathered. Evidently, one of the main mustering places will be in this huge valley, flat valley in the north, the valley of Megiddo, of Jezreel. They'll gather there, and the Lord will have gathered them from all over the world to the battle of Armageddon, this battle of the great day. He gathers them. It is the wine vat of Almighty God. is where he tramples out the grapes of wrath, they're gathered. This last, this is Armageddon, the last and greatest war in the history of humankind, the greatest tragedy in the history of redemption. 
And then the last angel, the seventh angel, poured out his bowl into the air, the atmosphere, and there came a great voice, notice this, out of the temple of heaven. This great voice out of the temple, it's the only time we're told this, is from the throne. We know this is the Lord. And he said, it is done. It's done. This is the end. It's done. It's done. Did everything I could do. In every age, I sent prophets. I sent judgments. I freed my people. I sent my son. I laid on him the iniquity of all of you. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turned his face away, we sing. I did everything I could possibly do. I brought judgments in layers to try to wake humankind up. Then I brought judgment in thirds and left two-thirds untouched. But now it's done. This is it. It's done. It's different from the word it is finished that Christ used on the cross. When he said on the cross, it is finished. To telestai, that meant paid in full, and that's the word of a new beginning. This is the word of an end. It's done. It's over. Christ died on the cross. For you and I, that's where it begins. We're filled with the Spirit, regeneration, the new birth. We have a leading in this world to live out our lives with purpose. And then when we step into eternity, look, when we step to the other side, that first, last breath in this world, first breath there, and we look around and realize what eyeballs are really for and what ears are really for and what experience is really for, and it surpasses anything we could possibly ever describe or anything we can ever really even expect. And as an enter in the heart of man, the things God has prepared for us, when we step into that, that's the first second of an eternity like that. It never, ever ends. And in the ages to come, we'll be learning of his grace and of his mercy. Imagine that. So when Jesus said it is finished... He was talking about the satisfaction of the wrath of Almighty God relative to those who would accept that forgiveness. Here, when he says it's finished, this is the end, not the beginning of a new era. This is the end of those who have turned away, who have blasphemed the name of God, who have refused to repent it. He's had it with human history. It's done. And there were voices, are they from heaven? thunderings, lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. The greatest earthquake in the history of humanity takes place with thunderings and lightnings and voices. And it says, and the great city, this is not Babylon, because this doesn't fall, it's divided into three parts, Jerusalem, The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities, plural, of the nations, plural, fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness, and it's literally of the wrath of his. Four things emphatic. The, the Babylon's fallen, it's his cup, the wine of his fierceness, of his wrath, 
It's come as it comes all of the nations of the world, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, you go across the country, Miami, London, Paris, Moscow, Beijing, all of the cities, plural, of the nations go down in this earthquake. Is this the one that Isaiah talks about when the earth reels to and fro like a drunken man? The whole world is shaken. All of the cities of, of mankind, they all go down. And it says in that process, every island fled away. So quick, Aruba, Jamaica, St. Lucia, get there now. Every island, because literally every island sank. And sadly, the mountains were not found. They level out. And then it says on this level surface, then there fell upon, again, definite article, the men, they're worshiping the beast, the men, a great hail out of heaven, every hailstone about the weight of a talent. A Greek talent is 96 pounds. A Hebrew talent is 114 pounds. If you get hit by one of those, you won't care whether it's Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> you have to imagine you know, I, years ago, was driving across the country with an evangelist team. We came into Cheyenne, Wyoming. We were going to stay with somebody. And about four days before that, there had been a hailstorm. And they said the hail was the size of golf balls. All the flowers around this person's house were beaten flat. Their tomato, you know, their garden, flat. Cars everywhere. It looked like somebody went over them with a ball-peen hammer. Windshields were all shattered. You, you got, drive by a parking lot, a car lot where they're selling brand new cars. It's <laughs> not as beat out of all of them. The windshields are all shattered. You look at that, you think, my goodness, there was a hailstorm in China at the turn of the last century where they said the, hail, the hailstones were bigger than softballs. And over 1,000 people died, over 9,000 people were injured, 35,000 homes were beat to the ground. Hail. So you can imagine when this hail comes down, 100-pound hailstones, what's going on. But they're standing out there. They've come together to do war against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're blaspheming his name, refusing to repent. In the Old Testament, the sentence for blasphemy was stoning. And it's almost as God says, this is it. This is it. And this would be the grapes of wrath being trampled out. This would be, you know, I, uh, Revelation 14, where the blood runs to the horse's bridle. This would be unimaginable. You have the blood of horses, the blood of men, the, the all mingled with this hail dropping out of a blazing hot sky. Just the whole phenomenon is unbelievable. You know, um, after World War II, when they started to experiment with, with the atomic bomb and nuclear weapons, they set they, they did their test at the Bikini Islands. Then when they did the next set of tests, they took ships that were in mothballs from World War II and put them at distances from the detonation to see what kind of damage would take place. And one of the interesting things is they found on some of the steel decks these huge marks and, and on the wooden decks, they were shattered, and they realized that when it went up into the ionosphere, it produced these gigantic hailstones about 
They, they estimate over 50 pounds these hailstones were coming down, and they dented the ships and all. So you can imagine in this kind of environment, these 100-pound hailstones coming down, hitting human beings and so forth. It says, it says they came out of heaven, every stone about 100 pounds. Look what it says then. And the men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceedingly great. Imagine the guy next to you gets turned to a pizza pie, and instead of you going, eh, you're, you're like cursing God, blaspheming his name. Just imagine how hard, how hard can the hearts of human beings become? How hard can they become? You know, the, the enemy, he sowed tares among the wheat. Sometimes I think these are the tares, you know. Whatever specifically they are, his influence is there in that they're so, sown among the wheat. And, uh, and you look at this scene. Look, this is terrible. Armageddon. Not just nuclear war. It's way worse than that. And it's spiritual forces conducting all of the steps up to the reality of Armageddon itself, which we'll look at a greater, if the Lord tarries in chapter 19, greater detail. But in the middle of that, you know, I think he, he, he puts everything on hold and he looks at us and says, Behold, you need to think about this and you need to think about a continually present imperative. I am coming as a thief. Not going to be any sign or warnings or oceans turning to blood. When I come, see, he comes for his saints, then he comes with his saints. But first he comes for his saints. We're told to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. If you're married to a post-tribulationist, you're in trouble, ladies. You're not supposed to set your bride on fire and beat her up with hailstones before the honeymoon. Okay? Behold, I come as a thief. You need to be watching. And you need to be keeping your garments, that your nakedness is not exposed to your shame. That's what he says to us in the middle. We, we look around at those around us, unsaved relatives, unsaved friends, you know, kids that are prodigals, people we work with, people we go to school with. This is what's coming. And hearts are either going to get harder and harder or hearts are going to break and people are going to get saved. I don't believe all that. Doesn't matter. I don't believe in God. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure he's got to see his analyst now. Look, this is reality, and it's coming. I'm going to have the musicians come. We'll sing the last song. Great for us to take inventory. You know, we read through this, and, and we can do this a hundred times, and it still speaks, and it broadens, and it deepens. But for you and I today, there's some, you know, we're to take a challenge from our Father in heaven as this terrible scene is painted before us that says we're to be watching, we're to be ready, we're to realize his coming for us is going to be in an hour that we think not. We have to be sober and vigilant because it's going to be like a thief in the night. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be watching. Let's stand. Let's pray together. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to get up here. You can come while we're singing or, you know, at the end of the service, make your way up here. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, some literature to read. We don't want your name or address or your email or your money. We don't want nothing from you. We want everything for you. Because there's going to come a dividing line. 
between the saved and the damned. And no human will be damned to eternity in outer darkness without having the opportunity to ask God for forgiveness and enjoy his forgiveness for free and his kingdom. You will make that decision. If you haven't made that, you need to make that decision today. You think you're going to stand in front of God in your own righteousness? You think you're going to dismiss his reality because you say, I don't believe God's there? You think you're going to take God to the big courtroom in heaven called fairness and he's going to have to answer to you? He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He wants you with him forever and eternity, not separated in outer darkness, but enjoying the joys and the beauties of his kingdom forever. That's what he wants. You make the decision. And if you've never come, we, we would ask, come today. Come today. Don't wait. Come today. Father, I know you've overheard. We settle our hearts. We look to you. And, Lord, uh, let, let us do this. Let us remember your coming as a thief, Lord. Let us not get too comfortable, Lord. Um, Lord, and you know it's just like us. It seems like the pandemic is waning, and then we do the same thing. Our fervor for you wanes, Lord. We seem so blown by every wind and everything that happens around us, Lord. Let a fire continue to burn in our hearts, Lord. Let all of the things going on around remind us about what's coming in greater measure. And, Lord, as your sons and daughters, fill us with your spirit. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We'll never be worthy of it, Lord. We can't make it happen. But we can look to you, Lord Jesus. We can take hold of your garment and refuse to let go, Lord. Pour your Holy Spirit out on us, Lord. Fill us afresh in these days that we live. Fill us afresh just so we can live with ourselves, let alone live with our spouses and our families, let alone be an influence to those around us. Lord, fill us with your spirit in these days, Lord. You hear all of our hearts agreeing, Lord. We want a fresh filling, Lord, that is in keeping with 2021, Lord. And we pray for those here that have never come, Lord, that you might draw them. We trust you to do that. It's your work. You add to the church daily as such as should be saved. We pray in your Lord, in your name, Lord. Amen.